talk with people who live outside the box and provide a platform for opinions and perspectives not often heard in the mainstream media. I wish I could be like Dr. Doolittle. He loved living with the animals. In some ways, I I am like him. I do like living with cats, dogs, even maybe horses and, and cows. He loved all animals. Unlike him, I detest living with pigs. They are filthy animals. I hate living with mice and even worse, rats. Cockroaches also are not pretty. In fact, they are very, very ugly. Down with filthy animals. And this is episode 97. Yeah, isn't it sweet? And in this episode, I'm going to play you a conversation I had with David Uberman. He is a spoken word artist, uh, writer, author, performer, and actor from Queens, New York. And I met him through this uh, open mic I sometimes go to in New York City called Stark Reality Open Mic, which I wrote a podcast newsletter on. And I interviewed Viviana Duncan, who is a part of Stark Reality, well, who runs Stark Reality. And that was for episode 57. She talked about uh, why she, how she got started with the open mic and what goes on there and everything. And I also interviewed Iman Ramawi, who's been featured there. Uh, she's a spoken word poet and disability rights activist. And Joseph Mauricio, who's a meditation teacher and a comedian, who's also been featured at that open mic. And that clip earlier was one of, David Uberman's performances. Uh, he does a lot of comedic uh, spoken word or uh, performances and reads darkly comedic short stories. I feel like I described Uberman's act pretty well in that article slash newsletter I wrote a while back on Stark Reality. And I said... Uberman's act could be described as a hybrid of Lenny Bruce, Rodney Dangerfield, Charles Bukowski, and William S. Burroughs. He's a real character. He was a very interesting guy to talk to, and I hope you enjoy listening to our chat. So I'm here with David Uberman. He's a writer, and I guess you, you wouldn't consider yourself a comedian, really, more of a spoken word. I'm more of a spoken word perform- performance artist. And I, you could say I'm a comedian. I don't take that as an insult, because I do. I make people laugh. If, I, if people aren't laughing, I'm not. I'm not happy. I, and I don't want them crying. <laughs> yeah. yeah so, but, but I guess kind of like dark. Dark. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I I do black satire, and I, I consider myself now really a short story writer, and uh, and I'm. I think I'm going really more and more into horror, into horror writing, not just with monsters it's just the human heart 
it's what people do to the other people and what you do to yourself. There's horror in those type of situations. Oh, like the darker side of humanity yeah, and the darker yeah, side of Yeah, when someone's everybody. murdering somebody and there's horror in that, you know, or they're trying to kill themselves, you know. You yeah, know. And, uh, and you were saying you wanted to do this interview like now. Okay, yes, so I wanted to. Uh, look, last night I did a great performance. My friend was there. And then I went home. I didn't sleep a wink. I got my body got hot, and I went to the bathroom 16 times. So I said to myself, I want to do this interview now because who knows, you know? Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, I've always been sick, and I had my, a lot of healthy friends. I did plays sick. I did films sick. I, I I don't know. I've always been sickly, but I'm still here, you know, and I'm still performing. You know. So you're trying to do like everything. I try to do well, everything while I'm still on the planet and still somewhat healthy, you know. Yeah, and that's I know why how we're to, having this historic. Uh, that's right. Yeah. Interview now. Because I wanna, I'm gonna do as much as I can. In fact, one of the uh, people I was telling you, one of the perform performance uh, poets. Uh, well, he was, he was more than he was a almost a, 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 a he was a jazz poet actually. He was many things. Uh, Steve was many things. Uh, but he died, he performed, and then he died after the performance. And I guess maybe that's the best way to go for a performer. You want you do your, your poetry or your music, and then after you, you do your gig, you drop dead, maybe that's the way to go. You know, that's how I look at it. You know, uh, so, so that's the way I am. I'm, I'm, I'm always going to want to perform. I'm always going to want to write. I'm always going to want to be on stage, and I'm always going to re want to recite or read my stuff, or perform my stuff, whatever. And how did you first uh, become interested in that? Okay, that's yeah. a good question. Yeah. I was interested in my 20s, and I had no idea about how to do any of this stuff. No idea. I mean, and I was like an angel dust kid, you know, smoking angel dust in my 20s, and doing the worst drugs imaginable and my brain cells were like destroying the thousands of brain cells every day and I just sort of like took little steps you know and I somehow I went to the Nurekin Cafe downtown and this at this time it was in the 70s or early 80s and it was all in, it was all Latino poets and they were reading in Spanish and I don't know Spanish, but I watched them, and I watched their emotions, and I said, wow, this is great, they're so emotional, and so much feeling is going into their work, and, and out of them, you know, they're pumping it out, and it's great, it's just so fantastic, and I said, I want to be one of those guys, you know. So now I'm, now I'm ready now seeing what other people are doing. I got to see William Burroughs, uh, uptown, he did this uh, this reading. Uh, I actually taped them with a little cassette, and uh, then I went to some open mics. I went to an open mic. The first open mic was in the West Village. It was a poetry open mic, and it was an older lady, maybe in her 70s. I can't remember her name, but she was very kind to me, and she says, "Do you have anything to read?" And I read something, and it was pathetic. <laughs> it was really pathetic. And then I met Amy Palais, who was a, a really good poet. She went to uh, 
she graduated uh, some some great college, you know, uh, I don't know, some college I think in Kentucky, and uh, and she ended up being uh, roommates with Richard Hell later on, and she was getting published here and there. And she was showing me, you know, different '70s uh, rock and roll papers were publishing her. And she became my girlfriend, but of course, we, she was into drugs, and I was into drugs. And when you have two people involved in drugs, it's not—it's like you know, it's like that Jack Lemmon movie, you know, it's her, you, her, and the alcohol or the drugs, and that doesn't work too well. So she, I, I somehow got into N. This is really how I got to be a performer. I got into NA. I somehow got downtown on 8th Street that meetings, NA meetings, and Amy, she descended from being a great poet and a great writer to being a really bad junkie, and then she became a prostitute. And I, I would see her, you know, go by, and I say, oh, "We have a seat for you here," and she says. Nah, 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 I don't want that. I don't want, there's no money. There's no, I said, what about being a great poet, a great writer? There's no money in it, she said. There's no money in it. So I said, this is what you want? To be a, a prostitute and a junkie forever? And she said, leave me alone, leave me alone. And she went her way. Oh, she went her way, and that was it, more or less. I mean, I ran into her a few more times, but it was just like, she, wasn't, she didn't want to get clean. So I got clean for her. Really, in a way, weird way, I got clean. We transferred. I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't talented at that time. I wasn't a poet. I wasn't a writer. And all of a sudden, I started going to open mics. And I went to ABC No Rio's open mic by Matthew Courtney. He was this great. Oh, he just was such a great performer. I, 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 I can't imagine any. I never seen anybody be better than he was. And he could take like. He just could make he improv poetry out of his head, and he was very very funny at the same time. I said, this guy's a poet and he's a comedian at the same time, and he was getting he was getting acting roles and he was really he was getting you know really good acting roles too, public theater. Uh, he was getting in with the right people, but also drugs showed up, drugs showed up and it destroyed him. But he was my hero. He was my idol. And uh, and he was gay, but I didn't care about that. It didn't matter to me. And and he believed in me. He was the first one of the first people who believed in me. So uh, he used to call me the Prince of Regal Park. And I started doing these open mics, and it was really intense. It was people like Jonas Hall, Maggie Epstein, uh, Michelle Shocks, Roger Manning. I mean, these, some were musicians and some were, but Jonas Hall was a great poet, and he's a musician now too. So it was all at the same. And it was open all. Mic. It would be a four-hour open mic, mm -hmm. and so like comedians, musicians, comedians, everybody, yeah. and everybody was trying to top each other, and. Uh, I would write just for that open mic. Just to write. I wasn't writing for the page. I knew nothing about writing. I just wanted to be the best one at that open mic. And I would do it week and after week after week. And all of a sudden, I started seeing that I had a whole bunch of people just coming to see me, to see what I was going to do. And I was pretty insane because I was getting off drugs. 
I was going to NA meetings and I was getting off drugs. And this was a really great way to get off drugs because it gave me, it, it kept me busy. I was writing, I was going to performances, I was doing things I never did before. And, I'm, and, and I, I always read books. That was one thing I always did. Even when I was a drug addict, I read a lot of books. So I said, okay, this is it. This is, this is, this is great. And uh, so I had these great people, very educated. Some of them were very educated. I mean, John S. Hall is, I think he's a very educated guy. And he's a very, has that black humor. And he's very sarcastic in his way of doing things. And I used to have to go on after him. So I was pretty good. I went on after him. And, you know, uh, you know how sometimes you go after someone that's really great, and you, but you could hold... You could hold that audience. Yeah. I was able to do that. And I said, hmm, not bad, not bad. There's CV something here. A, a challenge. It was a challenge, that. yeah. And I wasn't I wasn't wimping out. I was like, I, I, I had, I, I saw I had something. And then I, I discovered I had to drive. Because to me, talent you could get. It's the, but you have to have the drive. You have to be motivated and show up. You have to be ready to fail in front of an audience too. You can't just like, oh, you're going to be great every week. Uh, yeah. You, you got to be, you got to be ready to fail because the only way you're going to learn is if failing in front of an audience. And then I took uh, people. People offered me something. Some people offered me to be. In, uh, they offered me to be in a play, a downtown play, right? So. They wanted they, they wanted to give me a huge part because they thought I was a good actor. I had like a comedy type thing, and it was that type of role. The problem was I couldn't, you know, I the, the drugs I was doing was angel dust, methadone, uh, horse tranquilizer, and bad acid. So you know, my brain was kind of mushy, you know, <laughs> to take on like pages of dialogue and memorize it. The acting was there. It's just the memory work that I had to do. I couldn't do it. I, I knew I couldn't do it. And they saw I couldn't, I couldn't do it. So they reduced me. And it was fine. I was happy because I knew I couldn't be a quarterback. They wanted me to be a quarterback in that play. And I was, I wanted just a small little part. Give me five lines. And they gave me this small part. It was like five lines. And after the play, after every night of the play, I would ask people how I did. And one person said to me, and it was a, it was a theater critic, he said to me, I really shouldn't say this, but you were the best part of the play. I said, my five lines? He said, that's not saying much for the play. <laughs> but well, is it, it's just the, the way you were doing it? I guess the way I was doing it, because I had. he said he saw that I had this really... I, I'm good on my feet in, in front of an audience. Uh, I have like I'm good at uh, at improv. I'm a very good improv player. I know how to, you know, I, I I capture the audience. You know, I don't know if I'm so good on one on one, but if I have an audience, then I like I try to feel out the audience and see, you know, also fill out the room because rooms are important. If I have the, if I have a, like you know, when I used to go to Max's Kansas City, the great thing about punk rock, the old, the, the old days, is when I saw Debbie Harry Blondie or Sid Vicious, 
it was Max's Kansas City room was small, so was CBGB's, mm -hmm. and if you were up close, so everybody had a crowd among each other. And you were almost on top of the musicians at times. I mean, the stage was not that far off. And some people had a, would jump on the stage and Johnny Thunders would hit the person with the guitar. But the thing is, you know, I needed that, that crowd. And if, I, and if I needed it, like, a, a thick crowd. Now, if, they, if people get too distant, I, I realize sometimes I don't feel the energy. I can't feel the crowd, so I don't know how I'm doing. And, I get kind of like, oh, I don't know, I don't know if this is good, you know, I don't, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm doing my job up here, you know, because I want to see some emotion out of the crowd, and usually what I want to see is laughter. I, I, I'll be, uh, and I'll be honest, I want to see some type of laughing, but now a lot of my writing now is not for the audience, which is making, I'm having a conflict with this because now I'm writing for the, for the page. Because writing short stories is not, you can't read a 20 page or a 15 page short story in front of an audience. And I don't have the, I mean, some people can, but I get bored. I get bored yeah. of my own work. Well, I think some of the stuff I saw you perform was like you reading stories, but more like stories about your time in uh, Thailand and then. Uh, that, that one you did was about working at the post office. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I write about what I know about. and uh, But now I'm stretching a little. I stretch a little more. Because now I'm writing about things that I was involved in or I saw. And a good writer, you gotta, you got to stretch a little more. Than just, it can't just be all about you. you gotta, you got to stretch out and feel who the characters are and, and base it on people that you know or or you make it up but you could be making it up from five different people and you put it together. So I guess you're talking about like the difference between writing like from your own experience of writing fiction and Right, writing. right, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean now I mix a lot of nonfiction with fiction and I'm not sure what I should, if I, you know, they, the categories when they, when you send out your short stories is is it fiction? Is it nonfiction? You know, and, and, and then you gotta decide. Well, I think it's three quarters of it is nonfiction, so it's a nonfiction story, you know. And also sometimes when I do nonfiction stories, I don't remember. I mean, I, I did a lot of drugs. So a lot of times I have to construct the little missing pieces in my head, you know. Like I'll get the images in my head, but some pieces are missing. So I'll just have to do a lot of detective work to guess that this, these pieces so that, fit I guess together. It, it comes out in like a surreal. Yeah, in it a comes way. out in a surreal. And then of course, I, like I, I, I've done some horror. I did. I, I also mixed a horror story, and I took people that I knew, sort of knew, I, and I mixed them together. So because it's not right to write about someone, you know, I would mix them together, maybe three different people and one person. And, and I put him in a horror story. I put him in a vampire story. And then I would write, rewrite the rules for about vampires. I would change it around because I'm writing about vampires in, in Asia. I'm writing about uh, vampires in Thailand. And in my vampire story, the, uh, the vampires at Pattaya Beach, they, they wouldn't suck a, a Falang's blood because they would get sick. A Falang is a foreigner. 
like you and me would be foreigners. They, they can only suck another Asian's blood. That's how I had it in my story. And so uh, it, it's like I changed the rules. I changed a lot of the rules. And it was fun. It made it fun for me to change some of the rules because uh, I was able, to, I felt I was able to do that, you know. Oh yeah, The Vampires of Petty Beach is going to be published very shortly in uh, Sensitive, Sensitive Skin Anthology. I just wanted to put that out there. But uh, back to characters, uh, you know, I'm stretching now. I, I stretch, I don't stretch too much, you know, because I'm right, you know, I go to Thailand, I write about stories in Thailand fiction, nonfiction, and most of it has a horror component in it. For some reason I catch those horrible moments that people have with each other or I go beyond and I do go into uh, werewolves and, and uh, vampires and, uh, and all kinds of stuff. You know, I, I wrote a horror story about a mouse. Uh, a mouse, it was a crazy toy collector and I'm a toy collector, but it wasn't based on me. But I had this mouse in the in the story, and this and the mouse was like sort of a like a, a communist, and in the and the mouse would destroy his. He he would have these toy collections, and you know you'd stand up your soldiers in a certain way, where the mouse would come, and he would go to the bathroom on the soldiers, and that would drive the toy collector nuts, and he couldn't find the mouse. And finally, he found, you know, the horror about it is they, of, it was a diary. And every day, he would, there would be something different with the mouse until he found the mouse hole. And then he put 45 mouse traps to get the mouse. And when he did, he had a celebration with the toys. The toys, the to, the, the, had, he had different toy communities. And in his mind, everybody was celebrating, and he was the god of the toy communities. And so that was another horror story. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it now. Uh, uh, it'll come to me later. But And that got published. I was published online. You so know. have you always had an interest in horror even when you were yes. first Yes. Oh, I always loved horror. I loved, I loved anything that took you away from reality. I was a huge, I'm still a huge comic book collector. I have a massive amount of comic books, uh, monster books, uh, any I re thousands of science fiction paperbacks and horror horror paperbacks, and I'm always reading. I am always reading a book, and that's how I learned how to write. I never took a writing course. Uh, I, I I I I felt if I took a I didn't do good in school. I, school was very school is not for everybody. You know, sometimes the school system, you got to compete, and I wasn't good at competing at that point, and I had a little dyslexic, I was a little dyslexic, so right away, I didn't feel like I fit in the school system, and at one point, they wanted to leave me back, but since I read so much, they gave me a reading test, and then they, first they told my mom, we're going to leave them back, and then they called my mom a week later and said, no, we can't leave them back, so my mom said, why not? He said he did great on the reading test. We can't leave him back. So I, my mom says, well, you're in limbo. You're, either, you're, you're half an asshole, you're half a genius. And that's more or less the way I've been. I've either been, I never, I never considered myself smart. 
I do consider myself that I have I have some genius. I'm not a genius, but I have some genius in me. But there's more asshole than, than a genius. <laughs> and I realize that. So, you know, I work with what I have, you know. You know, you gotta, you know, uh, you gotta know who you are. I know who I am. That's one thing. I know who I am. And who are like the, the authors, I guess, that inspired uh, your spoken word, like your more spoken word? Well, the right? beats. I like the beats. I really like the. I loved William Burroughs for a long time, and then I didn't like William Burroughs because I started reading a lot of other writers. But I, I, now I go back and I st I like William Burroughs. He's not one of my best writers now. I like Clifford uh, Simic. If you ever heard of Clifford D. Simic, he was a science fiction writer, and he wrote about. He wrote in the 50s, he was a 50s and 60s science fiction writer, and he wrote about small towns, and of course the aliens would come to the small towns, and he, he would have different variations on the small towns, and he was, a, I loved him, he was great, and I loved Adam Hall, he had this character called Quilla, he was, uh, he came out in the 60s, and I thought he was a lot better writer than uh, Ian Fleming. I mean, Fleming came out in the 50s, and Adam Hole came out in the 60s. But I like Quilla a lot better than I like James Bond. James Bond, because uh, Quilla would get up, he would get really beat down. He, you know, he, he was much it was more. Was like of a, the same kind of story though, like a secret. Secret agent, but it was more involved. He had a controller. He, he, he it was more where he you could see the setup of how he was the he was the. He used to have a word like a gopher. He was the gopher that came out of the hole and came into the into the scene, and he was controlled by a controller, and he, he had a certain mission. There were certain missions that he had to do, and a lot of times he got really messed up. I'm going to tell you the whole thing to writing. You could write your short story. You know, you could go from A to Z. You put the lay you lay out. You know, you, you lay out your short story. And you write it up, and it could be a piece of junk. It's all in editing. You edit, you edit, you edit, you edit, until you kids. I wrote a short story. I had four different editors. My friend Don was one of the editors on that story. He's one of my editors for a lot of my stories. But he, but I had four. I had him and three other people. And then they would write it, they would, I mean, edit my story, and then I didn't like it how it was edited. So I, I would edit again. And I ended up editing the story 35 times. And I, was, I would talk in the street, the story. I'd be, well, that, I used the same word in four sentences later, the same word, because you're not, so, that's a lazy writer. When you use the word vampire more than four times in a story, that's being lazy. You've got to think of uh, different words for vampire. You know, uh, like like blood drinker, or you know, you got to think a lot of different. So, I was walking in the street, and I had this guy who was going to publish it, and he calls me, and he saw me walking in the street, like not really, you know, I wasn't conscious of people. I'm just walking and thinking about, and I, I was talking to myself. You know, I'm trying to, because I'm still trying to, I'm still trying to edit it again 36 times. I was going to do it 30. He says, it's done. The story is good. That's it. It's over. It's finished. We're going to publish it, and you, and now it's over. But, 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 it's over. It's good. It's excellent. That's it.
because at first I didn't know what it took to write a short story and I would write a short story oh this is another thing that happened I was such a good performer when I first hit the scene when I really hit the scene after the open mics I started getting solo gigs PS 122 uh, uh, what's the big theater? What's the big theater downtown? The huge theater. Oh, the public theater. The public theater. The public theater. I, I'm saying. I, I swear to God, I'm reading this thing. They, they asking for. You know, it was in a one of backstage, and they're saying we we want performance artists to audition for a back, for a, a performance at uh, the public theater. As I'm reading it, I said I, I said to myself, Oh, I can never do this. Never, I would never go there. I, I don't have what it takes. And as I'm saying that, they call me and they say, oh, we want you. I said, you want me to audition? No, we want you. You're ready. We want you to perform. You got it. But I, I don't have to audition? Don't you think I should audition? No, no. We saw you at PS1 until you killed. So I, I performed in public theater. I don't know how well I did, they didn't ask me back, but I performed there, they gave me my whole night, and I did my performance, you know. Uh, but I, I usually know at, at, at uh, PS122, which was, I was really, uh, the Alien comic, and Steve Buscemi's wife, and, and even Steve Buscemi, they were, they everybody was there. And I did a, Avangadorama it was called. And I, think, I did a thing, it wasn't even spoken word, I did things with bags, you know. I did a thing with bags, right? And I'm coming out with different bags and I'm improv on about each bag and I did it fast. And I had a rhythm, a real rhythm, right? You know, I didn't miss a beat. And even if I did miss a beat, I improv so well that nobody noticed it. And I had the audience. I could feel I had the audience. You could feel it when you have yeah. the audience. And it was like, and everybody came up. You know, when you do a great performance, people come up to you. And uh, so, uh, so that was that was thing. That was you know, it was great. You know, to be. So I, I performed downtown probably on every stage downtown. You know, I did study some acting though. I did have. It wasn't just uh, an improv of it. Like your I, well, improv was natural. That I didn't even need. I studied with two Academy Award actors. I studied with William Hickey at HB Studios. He let me after a while. He let me study for free. He knew I was a bad act, and he was a bad alcoholic. And he used to have me sit close to him, and he would be drinking vodka. I, I said to him, "That water smells." And it was vodka. I didn't realize he was drinking pure vodka. And then I studied with Sandy Dennis, and Sandy Dennis said to me, you got to be clean for my class. And I was clean for her class. And so I studied two terms with her, and I studied, oh, maybe two years with Bill off and on. I would show up to his class. And and that gave me, you know, I, I felt, I, my, the only problem with acting with me, and I did 15 plays downtown. I didn't go pursue acting after a while, and the reason I didn't, I, I started, I had a connection, I had a real good connection, but I didn't pursue acting because then all of a sudden I got, I was in a play once and my asthma got really, I didn't know I had asthma. And my, the character I was, they gave me a high energy character, which I was doing great. I knew my lines, 
I was finally getting through the memory work, getting the memory. I finally got my my brain trained to memorize lines. It took me uh, you know, it took me a long time. It was such hard work at first. And uh, and then the asthma came, and I saw. Uh, and acting, you got to remember, it's a group show. It's just not you. If you fall, the play falls. And so it's uh, you know it's it's a group effort, and you can't you're like you're in a you're you're a team now you're in a team, and uh, you don't you, you don't even have to be the quarterback to destroy the team. So I did I, I finished the role I was good at it, but I saw I was slowing down, and she, the director knew I was slowing down. She was very good. She was a very good director, and she said, "Yo, you still did it good, maybe." And then the other problem was I had a good I had a good job. At the time, it was good enough for me. I had a good postal job. I had a good union benefits, good vacation. I, since I had a cheap rent, I had money. So I would have to make a decision. It was coming to that. Give up your job to be an actor. Do you have what it takes? That's what I had to ask myself. Do you have what it takes? And I felt with when I was had, and I had really bad asthma. I mean, I had at that time when asthma first hit me, it, it, it I was devastated by it. And I said, no, I don't have what it takes. Not with not with asthma, and that being, I I, I think. The roles I would have got if I would have went higher up the ladder would have been comedy roles for sure, definitely comedy roles. And I think I could have maybe done it, but sickly, see if I was healthy, I think I could have done it. But sickly and then take chances at the same time, no. That's when I said I got to stick with the job, you know. And the post office was good to me, even though I was sickly. And, I, and you wrote that. Uh piece about working on the post office. Yeah, yeah, post office hell. But that was more of a very, ex very, uh, uh, it was more like uh, a takeoff on what was the 70s with the post office because at that time we were the serial killers, we were the dangerous guys on the street. Now everybody caught up to us. Nobody even thinks about postal workers being violent anymore because everybody's violent now. <laughs> so. Uh, but at that time, I, I, I said, oh, I'll, I'll make a character and I, I'll do post. And P Post Office Hell got, it wasn't even well written. That was another thing. It wasn't well written, but it got published three times. And that was another thing that was happening. That's what I wanted to get to. All of a sudden, all the literary magazines said, we want a piece by you. And the problem was, I wasn't a good writer. And I didn't know that. So I gave in work to all these literary magazines. And some returned it and said, no, we can't use it. But some didn't, and they published it anyway. And when I look back at that period of writing, I said, oh my God, why did they publish me? Of course, you know, at the same time, in the present, I say, well, why aren't they publishing me now? <laughs> but I said, why, did, you know, I, you can't win with me. This part of me says, why did they publish me? It's horrible work. And at the same time, well, I want them to publish my new work, because it's, it's great work now. But there's a, it's a world of difference uh, because at that time I would write something. You know, I I, I was doing all these people. I, I actually did a film 
I played Trail of Blood, I played this killer, I starred in a movie, and there was all kinds of weird talk about me at one point. But I was a shooting star, I shot right up and I shot right down. That's what really happened. But, you know, uh, there was a, a little, there was a little, there was, you know, you could feel, it was, you could feel something was going on with me and I didn't know where I was going. You know, everybody said, oh, he's talented, he's talented. But they didn't, nobody knew what to do with me. And I didn't know what to do with myself. And then I, I started making decisions. I said, you know what? I want to be a short story writer. That's really, you know, and, and what we really inspires me is not the beats. It's the old science fiction writers from the 50s and 60s, especially the short story writers. Uh, you know, uh, it was AR, uh, artificial intelligence. That was based on a short story. And, 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 and uh, who goes there? Who Goes There is a short story that The Thing is based on. Yeah. And there's four movies based on a short story. I said, it's, it's amazing. And uh, I read William Gibson. He's the new, the new guy. Uh, I just read a fiction book by him. I wasn't that happy with his last piece of work that I read. But, you know, uh, this is who inspires me is, is writers. And it doesn't have to be beats. I'm not just with the beats anymore. I spread my wings. Uh, out and I, I read everybody. I re try to read everybody. You know, people who I, I think I'm not going to like. I read the classics. I read a lot of the classics now. And so I have a lot. I read I, and I, I keep a diary of every book. I write down the title, how many pages, who published it, if hardcover, softcover. And I, 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 I read 3,000 books, it turned out. And sometimes I'll read them again because when I first read them, I didn't understand it or I didn't pick up on stuff, so I read it again. And it helps me with my writing because now you, I see what it takes to be a writer. Writing is not easy. It's not meant to be easy, you know. And especially fiction writing is not. Oh, you, you gotta you gotta put the background, which I find is boring as hell to put the background. The trees have to look a certain way, and the apartment you have to describe the apartment that the character is in. That's not easy work, you know. And and but the real good writers they know how to do it. And so I I, I make my effort to be, you know, and that's through editing, 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 editing. You know, and sometimes I say to them, and, and also you, I give myself time. Some people could write a short story in two weeks. I wrote a short story, it took me two years once to get an end to it. I couldn't find an ending, the right ending, and I had a stupid ending. I knew it was stupid. And then one day it came. It just came and I wrote the ending. And two weeks later it got published in a book, in an anthology. It was a gay Latino anthology. And I think I was the only white person. I think I was the only straight person in the book. But I didn't care. I was I was so happy to be published. Every every time I get published, and I believe in my story. That story was one of the first stories I believed in. I said, "This talent there. This is the beginning of because I'm now I'm writing for the page. I'm not writing to perform. Before I didn't know the difference. I'm writing to perform. Yeah, I can make anything look sound good in front of an audience." But to make it sound good on the page is a whole, totally different experience. So, and it's, you know, I, somebody finally told me uh, one day, some of the writers said, because I guess they got tired of me sending this, this work to them and it wasn't up to par and they were sort of publishing it still, but 
they started saying, you know, I wasn't, my, I was starting to become a fading star a little because, you know, performers go up and down. So I, this was one of my declines. And I said, why don't we have to publish this idiot for anymore? <laughs> so, so they finally said to me, it's time that you start writing for the page. And I was a big shock when they said that. And then I realized, yeah, they're right. They're right. Because now I read a lot of books. I know what it takes to write a book. What a, what the reads great fiction. I know it's, you know, you want when you write a, a short story, you want to, you don't want to be, it's like perf that in performance the right way. You got to make give people a roller coaster ride. You can't just be a one track pony. You can't just be, well, uh, you know, you you gotta, you know, you gotta have some valleys and some hills and you know, you, you know what I'm saying? It's yeah. like. Because uh, and if the, if it's one-dimensional writing, it's boring, you know. And you can see right away, like, oh my God, what did, who are they writing this for, you know? Yeah. You mean like scary all the time, or like? Well, yeah, you, you gotta have you gotta have characters. Like that, Stephen King has a lot of humor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Humor's good. Humor's yeah, good, or or some tragic stuff in the book. You write a story you could take all that and you put it in the story about the character you know uh, and I know a lot of characters I, I lived in New York I was a, a, a drug addict of some type not not I wasn't a glamorous drug addict like the glamorous drug addicts were the heroin addicts they put the needle in and they, you know I was smoking angel I was a burnout I think I'm gonna come out with a book it'll be a unique book about punk rock in the 70s and it's, I'm, I have a title, it's going to be called Burnout. And there's not too many people that could write that book, but I could write it. With like, with like fictionalized? Oh, fictionalized and real, and I met so many people downtown. You know, back then the celebrities were among, you, among us. Like I met Elliot Gould and Jennifer O'Neill one day in, the park, in Central Park in the 70s. And I didn't recognize Elliot Gould because he had a big long beard and he was having a fear he was still married to Bob Streisand and he was with Jennifer Neal it was marijuana day and they said kid come over here so I go over there you want to smoke with us I said yeah 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 sure sure and he said he had really good pot and he had a, like a cigar you know uh, what, what's those Jamaican things they call it you know a big big it was a huge joint and I'm looking at the chicken I just saw some of 42 and I said and I, I'm looking at him, but I'm looking at her, and I said, this chick, I've seen this chick before. I just saw the movie, Summer of 42, and Jennifer O'Neill was in that movie. So I'm looking at her, and she's looking at me, and Elliot Gould says, yeah, yeah, she was in that movie. You just saw it. It just came out, right? Summer of 42. I said, yeah, I just saw it. That's her? And she, she was like, oh, she was so fucked up. You know, she, did, she was like a zombie, and she's going, yeah, yeah. Nodding her head, and Elliot's like, "Yeah, let's smoke some more weed. Forget about that shit." And then I said, "You look familiar too." He says, "I said, oh my god, I don't know if he did the long goodbye, but he did Little Murders, the movie Little Murders." I said, "You're you're a movie star too," and then I said, "Oh my," and then I was so stupid. I said, "Why are you still married to Barbara?" He says, "Don't don't mention that name." Don't mention that name. <laughs> so, uh, you know, but that, back then you met a lot of celebrities, you know, or you met legendary people like Johnny Thunders, you know, he'd be on Max's plane, you know, you run into the night, you go to after hour clubs and you run into him and, and people, I think celebrities and people of talent were more giving to the public. 
you know, one of the New York Dolls, Arthur Kane, used to come up to me when I was a kid at, at Max's and say, how you doing, kid? You look, you're, you're all right? Are people treating you good? You know, maybe I wasn't up to par exactly with the crowd. I didn't, I didn't dress exactly. I was from Queens, you know, when I was uh, a drug addict from Queens. And, you know, it wasn't, uh, I wasn't into the heroin right away. I was into, you know, Queens drugs, angel dust. And he was really cool. He, Arthur Kane was very cool. And he was really, you know, he had a, used to talk. He was the only rock star who would talk to me, you know. And then later on, Billy Raff from the from the Heartbreakers, the you know the original that's the band that started punk rock. He would tell me, "Oh, you got to go see Wilson Pickett. He's playing at the the Palladium." So I would go see Wilson Pickett because of Billy Raff. You know, he was the bass player for the Heartbreakers. I mean, and you know, I met uh, Duran Duran. I met it. I met so I hang out with the guys from Duran. They were really good-looking guys, and we were in. Uh, we were in some, not Dance Interior, I think we were in another club, like Dance Interior. And uh, so uh, Duran Duran says to me, oh, do you know where Max's Kansas City is? Uh, we were a few blocks away, actually. We want to see Johnny Thunders, the heroin punk rock guitar player. I said, oh, yeah, I can take you there. Oh, yeah. And they said, oh, because you're going to help us, here's some pink cocaine. And they gave me all this cocaine. I was like, oh shit, this is great. And I, now I'm with Duran Duran, and he's, I was like, I don't know. How, I, look, I think I looked like Ratso Rizzo back then, and I had these really good looking English guys with these gorgeous uh, women with them, and we all went to Max's. And people from Max's that know me said, oh man, you must have scored. You scored. You scored. They, they knew I scored because they, you know, they would give me all these drugs and money. And it was, I said, oh man, this is great. You know, but back then things like that happened. You know, now, now I don't. Celebrities now are very separate from the people. They're scared of the people. I guess maybe Andy Warhol rubbed off on that, because Andy was got killed. You know, he got actually he, he really almost in a way got killed by that woman because she shot him. And then I think a few years later, I think that I'm not sure 100%. But my theory is though, when that bullet entered him, it gave him some damage and he, it caught up to him later on. I could be wrong about that. So after that, people, the celebrities, well, I'm a celebrity, you gotta, you, we go, you know, we don't deal with you no more. You know, because back in the 70s and 80s, everybody was very accessible, you know. I guess I was also young. Madonna, I saw Madonna in uh, Dance Interior. She comes up to me. I, I was I had a big afro. I had a little mustache and I had a tan. <laughs> and I had this brown tweed jacket. I looked like a jazz uh, musician and I looked Latin, believe it or not. And she comes up to me and she says, "Oh, you want to dance?" And she just did a show. I, I still have the fly. She did just did a show at Dance Interior, but. Madonna at that point was in the beginning of her career and she didn't look good. She had that mascara shit all over her. And her fans were women, young women. That was who her fans were. And later on she became Madonna. But I said, I looked and I said, no, you're not for me. You know, I said, I don't want to dance. <laughs> you know, but things like that happened in New York, you know. And then I had a Nico, Nico uh, from uh, the Velvet Underground. She be, I met Nico. I, she knew my last name because she used to say to me, uh, I would always you hang met Lou it. Reed too, or no? I, well, I, Lou Reed, I met separately. I did meet Lou Reed in a different place. I met Lou Reed uh, in the Hellfire Club, an S and M club, 
But I like the Nico stories much better than Lou because uh, Lou really didn't know. Who, I met Lou one night, and Nico knew my last name. And she used to, she was a little anti-Semitic. She used to call me, you're a stupid fucking Jew. <laughs> but, you know, one time I'm, I'm hanging out with her, and she's with a young guy. And I said, oh, I went, I went Nico, you see. And when I knew Nico, she wasn't gorgeous at all. She was dumpy, heavy, yellow. Her teeth were, uh, I don't know, I think teeth were missing already and yellow. And But I knew she was somebody. I knew she, because I saw her in the movie uh, La Dolce Vita, you know, before I met her or introduced to her. I don't know how I met her. But one night I come in, I wanted, she was playing with John Cale at Max's and I wanted a recorder. And I was, I, and I knew her, you know, she knew who I was because she was a drug addict and I was a drug addict. So she would always, so somehow she knew my name. She always asked me, who's carrying Huberman? Who's carrying? You know, she had that German voice. Who's carrying Huberman? I can't, I can't do that, Nico's voice, but because she's so unique. Uh, so one day I, I had a, a, a cassette and I wanted to record the vote, you know, her and John Cale. She says, okay, Huberman, you could do it. You could, you, I can't do it. You could do it, she told me. Don't let John Cale know. I know that. So after I, I, I recorded it, because, you know, you could boot, if you have a cassette, you could boot it now. Now, I, I, you know, I could boot that and make records out of it. So uh, she says to me, okay, Huberman, you're going to make a lot of money now with it? I said, no, that's my personal collection. She said, you're a fucking stupid Jew. <laughs> so, I mean, but, you know, so that's what, he, you know, New York was full of, you know, I have a million celebrity stories that I met, you know, Holly Woodlawn, Andy Warhol, and uh, Iggy Pop. I met them all, you know. Uh, so I was connected. It was very easy to be connected. I guess we, you were young. I was at the right place. And, and people mixed much more. It was much more of a mixture. You know, hip-hop was starting out, and, was, and on the third floor of Dance Interior was hip-hop, on the second floor was rock and roll, and on the first floor, or something like that, was the art scene, all the artists were coming, sprouting, you know, uh, were sprouting around. So it was a very, you know, you could mix and bullshit. And some people bullshit their way into, if they were talented enough, they could get into roles or positions where they didn't need to go to acting school or, uh, or to even audition. They got the role because either they had the talent or they had the, the, the sex appeal or something where that person gave them the thing. You know? and so I saw how things worked in certain ways, you know. Uh, yeah, it was the 70s was, and 80s was, for me, was a great time, but I almost died. Everybody was doing dope back then. Oh, the Low East Side was full of, we were a bunch of junkies. Bunch of junkies and deviants. I guess any final thoughts or things you want to wrap up with? Uh, I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad you gave me this opportunity because you just, uh, you know, I, I guess I started out that way about... Uh, well, this like Steve Delachinsky, Steve Cannon, they just passed away. My friend J.D. Rage, she was also a poet and writer. She passed away a year ago. One of the people who started this group, the Unbearable Writers, he passed away. I can't remember his name, but he was he was a really good writer too. Uh, you just feel, you know, when you're 63, you just feel like, you know, you. That's why I want this interview because I, the last time I was in Thailand, I almost died. 
So when you, you almost die and then you see all these people dying around you. And I, I, I had many best friends, many, that, are, that were much healthier than me, much healthier. And they, they passed away. You know, they died young. Uh, and maybe some, sometimes they got clean, they did the right thing for 10 years and all of a sudden they got AIDS and they died. Or they had a heart attack, you know, things catch up to you from the old day, I, old lifestyle sometimes. So I just wanted to get this interview done because, hey, tomorrow I might not be here. You know, that's what, that's how yeah, I Yeah, we've been it. talking about doing it yeah, like for a while. For a while, yeah. And I, I, at first, you know, half the time I, I, I didn't make the thing with you was either I was busy, busy doing gigs, doing my, my readings or performance, and the other half the time I was sick. Or I was running to Thailand, so that's the reason we, we didn't get together. But now I'm really glad that I, 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 you know, even though I had no sleep in me today, I said I'm going to do this interview because I hope everything works for you. I hope I, I hope I was entertaining. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. Good. All right. So that was the episode. I hope you enjoyed it, and it was good talking to Mr. Uberman. I mean, I took it as a huge compliment that he thought. You know, he didn't have, you know, with his health and everything, he didn't know how much time he had. And one of the things he thought of was doing my podcast. I just thought that was pretty neat that out of all the things to put on your bucket list, being on my podcast was one of the important things to him. So that was that was pretty cool. And I'm glad we did get it done. And it was also really cool hearing about New York in the 70s and 80s. Uh, I was born in 89, and I and I love New York. I, I grew up in New Jersey, but I've always been close, lived pretty close to New York, so and I've always gone there pretty frequently. And it, it was just, uh, I, I love it now, but it sounds like it was just, you know, a very different world back then. Uh, my parents actually met in New York, and I've heard some stories from them about how New York was, like in the 70s and 80s, too. It's just amazing how much it's changed. And it's neat how he's going from more performance writing to writing for the page, as he describes it. I look forward to checking out his future work and everything. Anyway, if you want to keep updated with future episodes of BSing with Sean K, I'm on Spotify and iTunes. Also, go to bsingwithseank.blogspot.com or... There's the podcast section of my main website, shawneese.com. And yeah, I'll catch you on the next episode. BSing with. Who? BSing with. What? BSing with.